I want to say to you this morning that uh, God is really interested in being personally, deeply connected with you. All right? He's massively interested. All right? He, uh, he in Christ, was incarnated. God was incarnated in Christ, Jesus Christ, walked on the planet, walked with us so that we could be closely connected with him. And there's something about God and about who he is that makes it easy, or easier, I should say, for us to be able to relate to him. And that's the fact that God has emotions. He feels things. Uh, I mean, sometimes we can kind of freak out a bit about that. You know, some people are a bit more stoic, just go, whoa, whoa, just hold on. All right. The thought of God being emotional is not particularly exciting to me. All right. But he does have emotions, right? Uh, a whole bunch of different emotions. Um, does God love? Yeah, he does. Does God get angry? Yeah, he does. Does he get jealous? Does he feel compassion? Does he get sad? Yeah, he does. Absolutely. You see, and this is, uh, this is kind of like, if I can put it this way, a connector for us uh, to connect with each other, a key connector is emotions, right? That we actually, we kind of feel things, we express things, we can, we can read kind of what's going on, we can understand what's going on in the other person, we can have empathy toward them. All those, sort of, all those areas just kind of help us to connect with each other. And I think that's how it works with God too. I think God has, has emotions because he's a person. And I think you have emotions because you're a person. I think emotions are core to being human. You know, God's made us to respond from the depths of our hearts to God's creation the same way that he does, or in a similar way, I should say, to what he does. We're made in his image. The scriptures tell us that we have emotions, uh, and God has emotions. Now, do animals have emotions? <laughs> Some of you are going, what, what, what have we, how did we get on animals all of a sudden? Some of you are going, of course they do, all right? Um, this is a classic Far Side cartoon. Um, how to recognise the moods of an Irish setter. <laughs> you know, some people suggest that maybe animals have emotions. I think they're probably more instinctive, even if they look a little bit like our emotions. And one of the things that animals can't do is they can't reflect on themselves. They can't observe that they're feeling a certain way. So um, Fido's not going to say, I feel sad right now. Partly because Fido can't talk. And if your dog can talk, you need to get it seen to, all right? But humans can. Humans can reflect on the way that they feel. And sometimes that's really helpful and sometimes it's not helpful. Um, sometimes we can get anxious about being anxious. Sometimes we can get sad about being sad. That's a time where the ability to reflect on ourselves can become problematic for us. But the reality is that emotions are a good thing. They're the way that God's made us uh, because we're, we're people. We're a person. It's, it's part of our personhood. But I just want to kind of pull up and just add a couple of qualifiers here. Right? We just need to be a little bit careful uh, with saying that God experiences emotions the same way that we do. Uh, this lady here, um, Valerie Tarico, I think her name is, uh, from the Huffington Post, uh, wrote this piece uh, on God's emotions, why the biblical God is so human. Um, we just need to be a little bit careful like that. There's probably a, a sense where you just kind of think, yeah, God's got emotions. We think, yeah, he's just like us in the way that we have emotions. But if you think a little bit more deeply about that, you realise it doesn't really quite work, all right? Because I don't think he is 100% uh, 
emotional the way that we are. He's actually different to us, even just in the sense that God doesn't have a physical body. So you, you think about emotions that you have and the way that emotions can, can, can tend to overtake your physical body. Um, that never happens to God. All right, it never happens to him. Um, theologians, I'm going to introduce you to a new word which I found out about this week, uh, anthropopathism. Has anyone ever heard of it? Get a Mars bar if you have. Gun, you're all going to put your hands up. Yeah, I've heard of that. Then <laughs> you need to repent of lying. But it's really, anthropopathism is a human way of talking about God. And that's kind of, I think, part of what happens in the scriptures. When it talks about God experiencing emotions, I think God does experience emotions, uh, but he does, they're not always exactly the same way that we kind of experience emotions. Emotions... Like it would be weird, for those of you who know anything about God, it would be weird to have emotions flood over God so that he kind of loses control a little bit for that particular moment. Does that make sense? Because that kind of happens to us, right? It can just kind of flood over you, especially if you're a parent. Um, sometimes that can happen. You can just kind of get stirred up. Maybe it's a road rage thing that kind of happens, right? Where someone cuts you off or does something to you, you can have these emotions kind of come up and kind of flood over you a little bit. Uh, God never gets anxious. He doesn't get stressed out and doesn't get bitter. All right? So there's a great deal of similarity in God's emotions and our emotions, but we're not saying that they're the same thing. And the big idea out of this introduction is that God is a person in a similar way to the way that we are persons, and part of personhood is having emotions, and that actually provides a really nice, uh, deep kind of connector um, to each other. All right, is, that, is everyone with me so far? We're going okay? So let's uh, crack into uh, Ephesians 4, verse 30. We're just going to do two verses today. Last week we did one. So uh, Ephesians 4, verse 30. So if you can just look up your Bible or move next to someone who's got one. We're going to hang out a little bit here. We'll probably look at a couple of other scriptures here as well. Ephesians 4, verse 30. I'm just laying down a few little kind of arguments here as we kind of kick into it. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you are sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Now I want you to notice there in verse 30 it says, And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God. That's really interesting. Part of the reason why it's interesting is because the Jehovah's Witnesses, for example, don't think that the Holy Spirit is a person. They think that the Holy Spirit is a power. Right? Anyone ever had a chat with a Jehovah's Witness at your door? That's one of the conversations you can have with them, right? But I don't know about you, but it's really difficult to make a power sad. You make people sad. You make someone who has personhood, in a sense, sad. So... Uh, what we're saying, uh, the Bible is actually saying, is that you've got God the Father, you've got God the Son who's Jesus, and God the Holy Spirit. And all of those three kind of make up God, and they're all individually God, and we call them the Trinity, and there's only one God, but there's three persons within God. And what we can see here in Ephesians 4 is that uh, Paul's calling the Holy Spirit a person, really, uh, because um, this person can grieve. Uh, this is a, a not uncommon in the uh, New Testament. The, the Holy Spirit's referred to multiple times as a he. He's God's wisdom. Wisdom's not impersonal. Uh, the Spirit speaks in the first person in Acts 10, 
The, Spirit, the Holy Spirit performs personal actions such as creating and judging. You've got in Psalm 139, the psalmist says, where shall I go from your spirit? He's a person. I mean, even in Ephesians, we've got the, uh, the teaching in Ephesians about how God's making everyone who loves him a temple in which he's, his spirit is actually going to dwell. So when we go back to Ephesians 4 verse 30, come back to it with me. It says, and do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God. Now, you may or you may not know this, but Paul seems to be referring to a passage out of Isaiah, out of Isaiah chapter 63. So can you truck over to Isaiah 63 with me? And have a quick look there. Isaiah 63. Uh, verse 1 to 6 of Isaiah 63 is, uh, seems to be about Jesus coming back. Um, as judge uh, and then in verse 7 to 14 uh, Isaiah starts reflecting under the inspiration of God starts reflecting on um, God's kindness in the past so I just want to read verse 7 to 14 and keen for you to just have your thinking caps kind of turned on if I can say that as we read this because I want you to hear in this the centrality of the spirit verse 7 I will recount the steadfast love of the Lord that's a good thing to do the praises of the Lord, according to all that the Lord has granted us and the great goodness to the house of Israel, that he has granted them according to his compassion, according to the abundance of his steadfast love. I love the, the, the phrase steadfast love, right? I just, in my head, I always think barnacle on the hull of a boat. So you just aren't getting that thing off. Um, For he said, surely they are my people, children who will not deal falsely, and he became their saviour. In all their affliction he was afflicted, and the angel of his presence saved them. In his love and in his pity he redeemed them. He lifted them up and carried them all the days of old. Listen to this. This is what I think Paul's quoting. But they rebelled and grieved his Holy Spirit. Therefore he turned to be their enemy and himself fought against them. Then he remembered the days of old of Moses and his people. Where is he who brought them up out of the sea with the shepherds of his flock? Where is he who put in the midst of them his Holy Spirit? He caused his glorious arm to go at the right hand of Moses, who divided the waters before them to make for himself an everlasting name, who led them through the depths like a horse in the desert. They did not stumble. Like livestock that go down into the valley, the Spirit of the Lord gave them rest. So you led your people to make for yourself a glorious name. Now, keep looking at that. I want you to just uh, think for a moment. What what is the role of the Holy Spirit in uh, Isaiah 63, verse 7 to 14? And here's what I think the role of the Holy Spirit is. If you have a look at it, God's presence is kind of enacted or expressed by his Holy Spirit being amongst the people. Can you see that? Like if you think about how does God be present personally with his people, it's by giving them the Holy Spirit to be right there with him. You know, Yahweh himself led the people through by the Holy Spirit. God gets up close and personal with Israel and with you by the Holy Spirit. He is the personal presence of God. It's actually the Holy Spirit that unites us to Jesus. He's the one that gives us a personal connection with God. Let me push even further here. Galatians 4 verse 6, many of you would know the scripture. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts crying what? Abba Father, right? Which kind of means daddy. Like you think about how 
personal and closer term that is it's crying out who's actually bringing about that the holy spirit is so it's like the sense that i mean here's the thing you could have a relationship with god like you have with centrelink couldn't you or the ato I mean, I was just talking to my sons yesterday. We went and we got some diesel. We're out at Dalby. We were leaving, which is always a good thing to do uh, at Dalby. No, I'm kidding. It's all right. <laughs> and I was telling them about how petrol stations work in, uh, in America, where you don't even go in and talk to anyone. You just kind of stick your card in and you t- tell the thing how, how many litres you want and it'll charge your card and then you fill it up. You know, You could have a relationship with God like that. I mean, we could just go on and on and on about the the myriad of ways that you could have a relationship with God and God has chosen for you, for every single person here, even if you don't know him, that he wants to have a deeply close personal relationship with you. Like, that's stunning. And I want to say this to you this morning. He wants to have a far, far, far closer relationship with you than you've ever thought about. You have never, ever thought about the kind of personal, deep, close connection that you could have with God, even close to how God's thought about having it with you. You believe that? And this, this rocks. <laughs> this is amazing. That the opportunity that exists for you right now to have the Holy Spirit in you and to be deeply personal with God is incredible. That he would actually be working inside of you to cry out, you're my dad. Come with me to Romans 8. Romans 8. Romans 8 verse 14. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are what? Sons of God. All right? I mean, like, does it get any better than this? All right? It's not like you're a farmhand. It's like the scripture there does not say, for all who are led by the Spirit of God are farmhands of God or shopkeepers of God or wardsmen or wardswomen. I don't even know what it's called. Is that what it's called? Do you get what I'm saying? Like, like there's so many other things that could be said there, but no, it's not. You're actually a child of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you've received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry Abba Father the spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God and if children then heirs heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ provided we suffer with him in order that we may be also glorified with him do you see that like this is incredible like oh man like there would have been so many good things that god could have just included you in right but he's gone no i'm going to make your family and i'm going to give you my spirit and my spirit is going to cry out in your heart to reach out to god in a family fatherly kind of way is everyone with me have you experienced that i mean i have in my life i've experienced my heart crying out to god as my dad and saying i i want you to be actively my father in this moment so many times i i I mean i I pray regularly and i use the word father when i pray it's like i've got a good dad and my heart cries out for the goodness of my dad it's a bit like what matt was talking about uh, earlier on in the service today you know he talked about having a good king you know it's a bit freaky for us sometimes to think about having someone in charge because 
the only expression of power that we see around us is a pretty mixed expression of power, you know, and people get it wrong and they go over the top and sometimes there's some good examples but they seem to blow up. But to have a God and a Father and a King who's just good all the time and is in charge, that is amazing. And then he says, no, I don't want you just to be an acquaintance. I don't want this to be a business relationship. I don't want it to be an ATO relationship. I don't want it to be a, even a hospital relationship. This is going to be family. And I'm going to bring you in. And to make it really stick, I'm going to seal you with my Holy Spirit who's going to help you to be deeply personal and relational with me. He has done so much to make this happen. Hasn't he? For us. But the weird thing is, we, uh, we have far more trouble relating to him personally um, even though he has done so much to make it work. So I want to throw out a few uh, ways that I think we can kind of relate to God in a way that's not particularly personal. Here's the first one. Uh, we can view God as a vending machine. True? Well, what's a vending machine? Well, you just... You talk, you talk to God when you need something. And maybe you're, uh, you're most passionate in your prayers when you need to get something from God. It's kind of like, if you just get me out of this, um, I'll serve you the rest of my life. Maybe, maybe this is you. Maybe you treat God like a vending machine. Maybe you just pray petitionary prayers all the time. And I'm not saying that you don't pray petitionary prayers, but you don't get particularly personal with him. Imagine, think of your best friend. Imagine if you only ever spoke to them when you wanted something from them. That'd be weird, right? That would be a weird relationship. Imagine your husband or your wife if you're married. Imagine only ever talking to them when you want something out of them. It wouldn't be a very good relationship, would it? See, God's interested in everything else as well. You know, so sometimes during the day, I'm just going to pull up and I'm just going to go, I'm just letting you know how I'm going. And it's not like I'm asking him to do anything for me. It's just like, oh, you're my friend and I'll just tell you stuff. You know, like when, when you get home to the, the people that you live with, they probably go, how was your day? Or what's going on for you? Or the people that care for you, when you meet up with them, they just go, oh, what's been happening? I mean, I think that happened to me this morning. People, people just go, oh, what's been happening? What's been going on? And what is that? Well, it's not a petition. It's not like I need something from you, but I'm just going to let you know what's been going on because I want to be known by you and I want to know you. You can view God as a vending machine. You can view God as a uh, good luck charm. Life goes better with Jesus, we say. <laughs> now, the Israelites kind of got this one wrong in the Old Testament. Remember the Israelites... Uh, fell into the trap of using the Ark of the Covenant as a good luck charm. It's like, let's get that thing out the front. We're going to win, right? What about this one? My day goes better when I've started it spending time with God. So I need to make sure I spend time with God so my day goes well. See, it's kind of using God like a good luck charm. That's what it is. And you know what? Your day will go better if you start with your head in the right place and your heart in the right place with God. But what's the point? Is the point to have a good day or is the point to walk with someone who wants to be so ridiculously personal with you? And here's just a quick kind of footnote, right? And not 
Churches don't talk about this very often, but you know, sometimes following Jesus is going to make your day go worse. Sometimes. All right? Because he's just going to ask you to do stuff and it's not always going to work the way that you want it to work, but it'll always be better than what you would have ended up with. It just is not always going to be easy. You could uh, view God as a distant father, a non-personal distant father. Maybe to you God's disengaged. He's there but he's not. Maybe there's a, a part of you that almost at times wants to reach out personally and deeply toward him to maybe try and win his favour but you just think, no, I could never be good enough. And even at a deep level, some people just at a really deep level it's just like, hmm, I don't even know whether he even likes me anyway. So it's a pretty, you see how there's a non-personal kind of thing going on there. You're just kind of disconnected from God. You can view God as a drill sergeant. You live with the fear of offending him. You live your life by codes and rules. It's not this deep kind of personal thing that the Spirit has been given to you to live out. It's, it's just like rules, it's codes, it's like working hard to meet standards. It's like God requires a particular standard of you and he's just going to get in your face if you fall short. So you better just keep going and keep working hard. Pretty non-personal. Or this one. You view God as a judge. You live your life under his condemnation. Like you'll never be good enough because you failed and you knew that he saw it and you knew he's not going to let you off the hook. You know, there's even those moments where you feel like you do well, but then the thought enters your head that he probably still finds something wrong with what you did. It's like there's a conversation sometimes that happens in your head, which is like God would kind of say to you, how'd you go with that? And you go, yeah, yeah, no, I, I did well. And then he would just go back, yeah, but what about that bit? That bit's wrong. There's evil there. Even in your best moment, there's a mess there in what you're doing there, and I'm going to condemn you for that. So each of these views, each of these ways of relating to God are not the way that he's organised for it to happen. I mean, you know in the person of Christ that when Christ comes and walks on the earth, God in the flesh, he's into you. He's into being close to you. He's into being made like you, as Hebrews says, in every respect. He's into knowing you. And we sell ourselves short with all of these other options, these other ways that we relate to God, which are non-personal ways. It's probably at least, I mean, there's, I mean, there's lots of different ways that you could describe this, but I just want to mention one more. Some people, and maybe some people in the room here, don't have a personal knowledge of God a personal relationship with God because they've never had a relationship they've never been connected to him and they don't know what it's like to be personal with him because they've always been separated from him they don't really know what he's like and the obvious question I think is well how do you know what God's like well it's kind of like how you know what anyone else is like that you want to have a relationship with 
kind of works the same way. So you don't, no one here knows Malcolm Turnbull. You don't know Malcolm Turnbull personally or relationally. I mean, there's, there's lots of different figures that you, and people that you don't know. You hear stuff about them. There's a lot of you that don't really know me. I'm not saying that's a good thing or a bad thing. It just is a thing because there's this many people in the room. Well, how would you get to know someone that you didn't know? Well, if there was a problem between you and them, you need to deal with that problem. There was a big problem <laughs> between all of us. And God and Jesus came down and died on the cross to remove that problem so that we can know God. So you sort out the problem that's going on between the two of you and then you give yourself to the other person in some way. You know, like that's how it works, right, with relationships. It's like you don't get to know them, you don't get to be personal with them unless you give yourself to them and they give yourself to you to some degree. You, you trust them. And all of a sudden as you trust and you give yourself to them and they give themselves to you and trust you, even in a small little way, all of a sudden this vista opens up of knowledge of the other person. Have you ever noticed that? And then, in really negative times, or dark times, when someone does something that breaks trust, what happens? That vista just shuts up, doesn't it? And all of a sudden, I don't know them anymore. But see, it works with God in a similar way to the, uh, the way it works with us. Is God calls for our trust. And he is very, very trustworthy. And when we depend upon him and rely upon him and ask him to forgive us for the mess that we've created between us and him, a whole vista of new knowledge kind of opens up. And you know what we find? We find that he's been the one that's been moving toward us the whole way along. That he took skin on and he walked around. That he's the shepherd that leaves 99 to go and look after the one sheep that's lost. Now I read a, um, you might have heard of the story of uh, Zacchaeus. You know, it's Luke 19. At the end of the story of Zacchaeus, you know what it says? It says, uh, Jesus says, salvation's come to this house for the Son of Man, talking about himself, has come to seek and save the lost. And I read this little uh, devotion yesterday and um, this guy wrote in this devotion. He said, you know, the criteria, the thing that Jesus is looking for in people that he's drawn to, lostness and I go you know what I go I go yeah, I can do that I can do that really well you know like there's part of me that just goes if I've got to be impressive I'm going to struggle with that if I've got to deal with the the drill sergeant or the judge um, if I've got to deal with the, the distant father I don't know whether I can do any of that but if Jesus is the one uh, the incarnate son of God the God in the flesh who comes and the criteria for him seeking me out is that I need to be lost. I can do lost really well. Who's with me? All right, we can do lost well. So let's, you know, rather than feeling like we've got to impress God somehow, let's all be people who do lost really well. Because God gets really personal and really relational and really close to people who are lost. But you know what? We need to buy into it. If you don't buy into that, if, if the lost person doesn't, kind of stick their hand up and, and really buy into the fact that they're in trouble and they need someone to rescue them. If the lost person doesn't say, what a wonderful rescuer has come for me. What a wonderful saviour has come for me. The rescue could be missed, right? Who knows that to be true? 
It could be missed. Listen to what Eugene Peterson says. The too often disregarded scriptural rule is that we cannot be made to believe. Belief by its very nature requires assent and participation, trust and commitment. When we believe, we are at our most personal and intimate with another, with the other. It's talking about God. Belief cannot be forced. If we are bullied or seduced or manipulated to believe, we do not end up believing. We end up intimidated or raped or used and we are less, not more. What's he saying? You just got to buy in. And I would challenge you. I mean, if you, if you know Jesus today and you're just going, I think I treat him like a vending machine. He's looking for way more than that. You've got to buy into that. You've got to push into that, push into the personal, push into the relational with him. If he's a drill sergeant, I mean, just whatever you need to do, let's just push past that. God has done some amazing, has made some amazing provision for you to be deeply connected and personal with him. If you don't even know Jesus and you've never had a relationship, all you've got to do is just talk to him today and say sorry for turning your back on him and tell him that you just need help. Just be lost. I mean, that would be a good thing for all of us, right? Because there's maybe even some of us who will follow Jesus for a while and we just feel a bit lost. You just go, well, you know, I'm just going to do the lifesaver thing. You know, I'm out the back, the breakers are coming over and I'm just sticking my hand up and letting you know I'm going to sink in a minute. He's looking and seeking for the lost. In the uh, introduction today, I uh, mentioned the fact that God gets sad. And we've read Ephesians 4, 30 and 31. And so you know the answer to this, but I'm just going to ask the question anyway. Because I think it would be good for us just to camp out on it a little bit. Can you do anything that will affect God? Like, can you make God sad? Well, the head-spinning reality is, yes, you can. That is just an incredible reality. Like, just think about that for a minute. He is the sovereign. He's the one in control of everything. Everything that has ever been created in the physical world was created with a word by him. He's the perfect one. He's the all-powerful one. And he has set things up such that you can actually make him sad by what you do. You little speck human that lives for 70 or 80 years, that can't, I mean, the world record for humans bench, like, not bench pressing, the world record for the clean and, clean and jerk, I think it is, and the weightlifting is like 260 kilos, all right? It's just really pathetic. I wouldn't even get close to, us, close to it, but it's really pathetic, like a quarter of a ton. That's the best that a human could do. Like you think about that in contrast to, to hurricanes and cyclones and floods and just a simple storm that might actually roll through Toowoomba, usually at closing time, at school time, about three o'clock in the afternoon. <laughs> like it's, it's nothing really. And yet God has determined that a 70 to 80 year old living person could actually affect him by the way that they live. And it comes back to the, the thing about emotions. I think God gets affected by us because he wants to be in relationship with us. And he is in relationship with many of us. I mean, just stop for a moment and think, what if God 
was unaffected by what you did. He wasn't, he didn't get happy when you loved him and were really close to him and just um, walked with him during the day and he didn't get sad when you, when you didn't. It'd be a weird relationship, wouldn't it? I mean, that, that's just kind of how relationships work, you know, is that there's kind of a connection there and often that's happening. We, we can sense that connection through emotions. It's not the only connection that's happening relationally, but it would be a weird relationship, excuse me, to be unaffected by um, someone else. Second point there is uh, don't make God sad, you know. It's a, uh, a really... Um, really interesting thing you can observe within uh, the church is uh, we often end up in a place where we kind of only have two options when it comes to blowing it and the way that God reacts to it. One of them is that he doesn't really care and the other end is that he, uh, he condemns us. Um, and I want to suggest to you this morning that uh, Ephesians 4 verse 30 is uh, giving us a third option which is that God gets sad uh, about us kind of blowing it. You see, to grieve is to cause someone to be sad, sorrowful and distressed. You know, God is holy and the Holy Spirit is God and, and he's living inside of us. He's a person, he's deeply personal and it makes sense that when we turn away from him that he would grieve, that he'd be sad about that. It would be a weird relationship if he was someone who didn't kind of grieve or didn't respond or was unaffected by uh, the, way that, um, the way that we do business. I mean, just pause again and think about it. I mean, the fact that a mere human can cause God distress is profound. In itself, that's profound. And the second thing just to think about is just the, the seriousness of causing him distress. I mean, if he is who he is, and he is, it's a serious thing to make him sad, right? This is not like you just kick the cat, right? And the cat runs away and it's done, right? It's not like affecting an animal like that. We're, we're talking about the God of the universe. Come back to Ephesians 4 um, with me. I want to ask you a quick question. This is a crowd participation moment. We have those every now and then at the project. Can you just have a look in Ephesians 4? Can you look at verse 29 and just have a punt? Can't put any money on it because right, we're in church, but have a punt at uh, what kind of things do you think Paul is probably thinking about when it comes down to the things that would make God sad? Verse 29, have a look at it. Has anyone got a thought? Yeah. Using his name in vain. Someone over here? Corrupting talk. All right. Yeah, so that kind of stuff, right? Specifically in, in 29, I think using his name is vain is absolutely going to be a, a kind of background thing in there, but very much like Paul's kind of thinking, here's something that you could do to really make the Holy Spirit sad and make God sad is the way that you speak. And why would that be? Well, I think part of the reason for that is the Spirit's up to something completely different in people and in the church than corrupting talk is up to. Does that make sense? I mean, if you've ever had, um, I wonder whether you've ever seen kids do this. You can get kids, especially kids who are, in, who are siblings, and, and they'll be at the beach, you know, and one of them will be up one end building this um, amazing sandcastle, 
Am I supposed to say castle up in Queensland? Castle. Okay, thank you, New South Welshman. I'm kidding. So up one end is this kid that's building this amazing sand castle, right? And down the other end is this crazy 18-month-old toddler who's just like everything needs to be destroyed, you know? And so this person's working hard to do something good and these other kids come along and just destroying stuff. And what happens to this other kid? They get really angry about it. They get really upset about it because they're doing something really positive and there's someone else kind of working against that. I think that's part of what happens with the Holy Spirit is that he's up to some amazingly good stuff, a really, really good stuff. And when we come in and we just use corrupting language and we start tearing down what he's building, it makes sense that he would be sad about that. Anything incompatible with the unity or purity of the church is inconsistent with what he's actually doing and it grieves him. Now the good news is in verse 30 there, Ephesians 4 verse 30, you can see that the end point is sure that the Spirit seals us for the day of redemption. But in the meantime, we'll get to this a little bit more in a minute, in the meantime, Paul's saying, hey, listen, keep in step with what the Spirit's doing. Now, let me ask you uh, another question for you just to reflect on. How do you feel about making God sad? Does it bother you? You know, empathy is a key ingredient in a relationship to make the relationship kind of go well and, and to be close and personal, right? Now, I started thinking about, and you might think, this is weird, Peter, but some stuff, this weird stuff goes through my head sometimes. I started thinking about sociopaths and psychopaths, <laughs> all right? Because empathy is not a particularly strong trait for those people. You know, and then I thought, and I'm not making this point, but then I thought, I wonder whether we could ever get in that kind of vibe with God where it's like, I just want to do my own thing, I want to get the stuff accomplished that I want to do, and I don't really care about how it affects God. And I'm not saying that you're a spiritual psychopath or sociopath, I'm not saying that. But can we get in places where it's just like, we just want to do what we want to do and we don't really care how it affects him? You know, relationships like that don't last very long, do they? You know, if you, if you just run roughshod over the top of people because there's something that you want to do and you don't think about the other person, what it's like for them, they're not going to last very long. I'd encourage you to, uh, to think about and to reflect on making God sad. And the flip side, the positive side, is making him small. Wouldn't that be cool? Like you, you live your life not under the pressure or the slavery of having to perform, but you live your life with a loving father who sent his son to die on the cross for you so that your favour with him is guaranteed, but you live your life to bring a smile to his face. Well done, kid. <laughs> well done. And that's it. I mean, that's been a massive thing for me in the last uh, month or two is like I just want to hear the father say, well done, Pete. Well done. Well, what makes God sad? We just uh, touched on this before. It's, uh, it's the things that we say. So if we go to verse 31 there in Ephesians 4, let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamour and slander be put away from you along with all malice. I want to rip through these really quickly and then we'll finish up. Think about bitterness. Bitterness uh, comes from the, the root idea of, of giving something a bitter taste. 
You know, in, in, uh, in the Greek, it's got the sense of a, um, an inhuman treatment, the inhuman treatment of a slaveholder. It's animosity, it's anger, it's a harshness. Wrath and anger. I mean, there's two words, that, two words uh, in the Greek for anger and wrath, and Paul uses both of these, you know, because the New Testament was written in Greek there. Anger is kind of like a boiling up, overwhelming passion of anger. And if you've got kids, you probably know what this is like, right? Because every now and then that happens, right? It's just this thing that just kind of stirs up in you. And some of you have, uh, have, been, uh, have, have dealt that out to other people and some of you have had that dealt out to you. I mean, anger and wrath is just, they are both just so strong and so uh, harmful relationally. You know, wrath has probably got the sense that it's more rooted in the nature of the person. It tends to be a stronger anger and I, I would ask you this morning how do you how do you go with your temper have you got a good handle on it what about clamor clamor is like a shouting and outcry it's like a raising of voices in in the middle of a quarrel i mean in my head the picture that comes up is an asian parliament all right, and I don't mean that in any kind of racist way. I just remember seeing news reports where they just start yelling at each other, and then all of a sudden there's a punch-up happening in Parliament. That's the kind of picture I have when it comes to clamour. You know, raised voices in the middle of a of a quarrel, or shouting, the outcry of it all. And I wonder, even especially, um, I mean, we're, we're pretty restrained, I think, as Australians generally. But one area I reckon clamour can come out is in a family, can't it? You know, we've got four sons and there's six sinners in the house and stuff can happen sometimes, if you know what I'm saying. And, and people offend each other and then this person raises their voice and they raise their voice and then shock and all mum and dad come over the top and do you know what I mean? And, and it can all have the feeling like it's just a bunch of clamour going on and it's kind of shouting an outcry over the top. What about slander? Slander is like insulting speech of all kinds. I mean, have you ever said something about someone else that wasn't true for the purpose of damaging their reputation? Ever, just even once in your life. You exaggerated something. So maybe it was mostly true, but you just added a piece of parsley on the, on the side just to kind of garnish it a little bit. You know, abusive speech is slander and then to kind of top it all off paul kind of kicks in and talks about malice i mean it's 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 almost got to feel like check these things out and then we're just going to go down to below ground for a minute and malice is kind of almost kind of below ground it's a special kind of moral inferiority an ill will a hateful feeling the desire to hurt someone These are powerful things. And Paul's saying, let's not have any of those. You know, if, if you think about, if you think in your mind, oh, I just had a, from what you know about what you think a true human might be, these things just don't rate in terms of what a true human might be, do they? Like if you think about someone angry, wrathful, clamoring, slandering and malicious, just wants to hurt people, that doesn't sound like a really good example of a human, does it? And then in the middle of all of that, you know what that does? Not only do you have the people that are doing those that are kind of 
less than human, but they're actually making other people less than human by the way that they handle themselves. It's dehumanising people. You, you look at that list there from Paul in verse 31, you don't, I don't think dignity is happening right there in all of those things. The opposite is happening. People are losing their dignity. That makes God sad. It makes the spirit sad when we do those things. But come back with me. I'll, I'll just put it on the screen. Come back with me to Ephesians 4 verse 30. And I wonder for those who are the, the linguists who can uh, discern between past, present and future tense, which probably will be all of you. Um, I wonder if you can just identify these for me. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by him. You were sealed, past, present or future tense. Past. For the day of redemption, past, present, or future? Future, all right? So here's the thing. Sealed, day of redemption, where do we live? Here. <laughs> In the middle bit. In the middle bit. And Paul's saying to us, live as a true human. In the middle, in between, when you are sealed by being given the Holy Spirit to the day where you be redeemed. Here's what John Stott says. So the sealing and the redemption refer respectively to the beginning and the end of the salvation process. And in between these two termini, we are to grow in Christ-likeness and to take care not to grieve the Holy Spirit. For the Holy Spirit is a sensitive spirit. He hates sin, discord and falsehood and he shrinks away from them. Therefore, if we wish to avoid hurting him, we shall shrink from them too. Listen to this. Every spirit-filled believer desires to bring him pleasure, not pain. I want to finish off by looking at uh, Isaiah 42. Can you just flick across there? It's a prophecy uh, by Isaiah about, about Jesus. So just read through it, make a couple of comments and then I'll pray and we'll, we'll be done. Isaiah 42, verse 1 to 4. Behold my servant, who's that? Jesus, yeah. whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights. I've put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. Do you hear that? He, he doesn't do clamour. Jesus does not do clamour. He does not do anger and wrath in an uncontrolled kind of flooding kind of way. A bruised reed he will not break and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. I mean, is that you? <laughs> it's like I am a faintly burning wick. He will not quench out. He's, he's gentle. But he will faithfully bring forth justice. So he's not soft, but he's gentle. He will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth and the coastlands wait for his Lord. Just keep looking at those verses there. You see there, Jesus, the prophecy about Jesus is he will not be self-assertive. And it stresses there, doesn't it? His quiet, unaggressive demeanour. He's not going to shout aloud in the streets. He's not, gonna, he's not out to startle people. He's not going to cry out. Like he's not, Jesus is not in this prophecy and in person was not one who would dominate or shout others down. He's not one who, who raised his voice to advertise himself. Jesus was not into self-promotion. 
And he's not dismissive of other people, however useless or beyond repair they appear to be. You see here, Jesus is the true human, is he not? He's the true human. And I think he's the one that Paul in Ephesians 4 is saying, don't do this, be like him, be like Jesus. Use your speech the way that he did. See, he accomplished something magnificent, didn't he? See, we often fall into the trap where we think, if I don't get angry about this or someone doesn't get angry about this and get some wrath going and a little bit of... Sometimes we even kind of think, if someone needs to get a bit of slander going because they just need to feel a bit of pain so that they, they get things, that they get a clear understanding of things. No, 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 Paul's not saying that. And Jesus was not that kind of person. Jesus was the one who accomplished justice without needing to resort to these weapons. Paul would encourage us to do likewise.